Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to uh, Fighting Words with Don Hendricks. 
course, tonight with Don Henderson. Um, Don was giving his uh, intro uh, as the music was going. I'm not sure what was going with the phone, but uh, we have a dedication tonight to a young man uh, who has bravely gone farther than anybody he thought he would ever go. He's graduating from uh, the um, pre-kindergarten um, pre- program in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, he's much better than uh, he's very, much better at, at graduation and at uh, studying than his his namesake. That's Mr. Bobby Carroll. Um, Bobby is graduating on June 1st, and we wish him a lot of luck. Uh, his namesake, his uncle Bobby. Uh, went to school the first day, and uh, the second day when his mother tried to get him up, she said, "He said no. I went. I, I went to school already." So um, <laughs> Bobby will be Bobby's way ahead of his, his uncle already. So again, uh, uh, the proud parents are Frank and uh, McKenna Carroll, and uh, the proud sister who will be matriculating next year, uh, Miss Bella. So uh, to the whole guy, whole family, uh, we're, we're proud of you. Seems Okey like doke, Frank. I think we did hear the opening. Me. We once again repeat that the Roy Cummings, as always, is in Tampa. Covers the Rays, the Lightning, and the Bucks. Roger Hendler is in Atlanta for the last couple of uh, ten days or two weeks before he moves back to Philadelphia. Is uh, raising ground and uh, be associated with what's happening in the world of Philadelphia as well. And we'll start off tonight talking about the National Hockey League. And Roy, you covered uh, the Lightning since day one when they first. Uh, became a team in the National Hockey League. But more important, important importantly, uh, you saw an expansion team and the Lightning make their move. But we're seeing two expansion teams in the last three years in the National Hockey League that are making history. Yeah, well, there's a, um, there's a big difference, really, in the, uh, in, in the expansion teams that, uh, uh, the, between the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, and then, look, there was a big difference between the Lightning and the Florida Panthers. Um, there's a major difference. It's, it's uh, unrecognizable to the Lightning and the Ottawa Senators. They got Senators. The garbage. Exactly. Yes, uh, they did. They they got garbage. Well, I wouldn't say garbage. They they got they they got a bunch of fourth line players at best. Um, you know, and and we're fortunate to have that really. Whereas the uh, the expansion rules have changed dramatically. And uh, much to the benefit of teams like Las Vegas and Seattle, and that's why you're seeing those teams uh, succeed and thrive, and 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 good for them. I mean, it, it's a great story. That, uh, and, and in fact, you know, once again, uh, the NHL, my guess, will will lead the way um, in how expansion is handled in Major League Sports. Uh, if the NBA ever expands again, uh, certainly Major League Baseball will. Uh, if the NFL ever does, you will see a completely different setup for those expansion teams uh, than you have in the past, and you'll see a setup that's designed to allow them to be competitive right off the bat. Um, you'll see less players protected uh, from the existing teams. Uh, you'll see better uh, draft pick opportunities uh, right off, right away, and they'll be in the lottery of that kind of thing. And, and once again, the NHL paves the way for that. The NHL paved the way for a lot of things that are going on, seem to be mainstream in sports nowadays. A lot of it's little stuff, you know, things like actually presenting the, the trophy on the field instead of a, uh, you know, a, a smelly uh, champagne-soaked locker room, that kind of thing. 
Um, a lot of that stuff was, you know, that, the NHL led the way in a lot of those things. I, I, again, I've, I've, talk, I've thought about it over the years, thought about putting together the long list of things that the NHL really started. I mean, they were the first team to really – they were the first team to show – uh, games by their own teams on on a satellite, you know, that you where you could go and buy a package of games and you could see all the, you know, at the time you could see all the Canucks games you wanted or the Maple Leafs games or Blackhawks or Bruins or whatever it might have been, the Flyers. Um, they did that, you know, 20 years ago, and 30, 30 years ago, actually, and um, they, they were pioneers in that. They've been pioneers in a lot of things, and they will be pioneers in the way uh, expansion is handled in the major leagues, uh, major league sports going forward. Um, when baseball expands, you'll see a different uh, setup. And it's because, again, uh, these teams are paying enormous amounts of money uh, to become part of the club. And they want to, uh, they don't want to have to struggle for five or six years. They want to be able to, you know, bring fans in and, um, and, and look like they belong right away. And uh, Seattle has done that. Las Vegas has done it better than anyone. Um, despite the fact that they've gone through a couple of different coaches uh, over the process, and despite the fact that they're in, you know, a very difficult conference and division. Um, but Vegas is really, uh, you know, they're the team to look at. And uh, they look, they, they took some chances, uh, too. Uh, you know, they, they went out there on a limb and, and said, all right, we're going to give up some of our best players and, and we're going to get uh, Jack Eichel. We'll, we'll take a chance on the kid who's had this uh, surgery done where he has a, uh, you know, a, a false uh, vertebrae put into his neck. We'll take a chance, and um, and it's worked out for them. Uh, I, I think they're going to win the division, or win the. Uh, I think they're going to go to the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, whether they win or not, uh, that, that, that's hard to. It's a, it's absolutely a coin flip, but it's a great story that uh, the expansion teams in the NHL have fared so well, and that the Vegas Golden Knights are uh, headed possibly headed back to the play to the Stanley Cup Finals yet again uh, in, after three or four years in the league. We'll get to Roger in Atlanta in a second, but just to follow up on that, uh, Roy, I think that a lot of it comes, and I'm a great believer in leadership, uh, I, I think that you have to have the right people in the right place. Bedman, uh, when the COVID hit, he had the idea of how to put a, you know, put a, a Stanley Cup final series together. He had a contract signed with the Players Association before there was any kind of trouble on a strike. They were all ready to go and play. And uh, now, of course, with uh, his ideas on the expansion where you had to give players the value rather than just players that were uh, on the fringe of going out, I think it all comes down. And i got, I got to say, I think Bedman needs a lot. The other commissioners are doing basically nothing compared to what he's done. You know, I'm glad you said that, Don, because I agree 100%. Uh, you know, the NHL is always kind of, you know, forgotten. It's a forgotten league in, in a lot of cases, except for the fact that, you know, the, the the fans in each city, I mean, they sell out all their games in every city virtually uh, except a couple. Um, and uh, it, it, the, the league is as clean a league as there is. Um, you don't have, uh, you know, certainly the the degree of uh, off-field, incident, off-field incidents that you have in the NFL or the NBA. Granted, um, the, the NFL certainly has, you know, hundreds of more players. Uh, but the NBA doesn't, and um, you know the, the, the off-field uh, issues that they have, you just don't have that stuff in the in the NHL. You have just as much, you know, on on uh, on the field or on ice drama as you do. You have just as much drama caused by, you know, players, uh, 
uh, wanting to play and, and not getting a chance to play and, and being replaced and things like that in general. I mean, all the stuff that, you know, makes sports interesting is there in the NHL. The game is exceptional. Um, but you're right. Uh, Gary Bettman has done an exceptional job of uh, growing the league, uh, turning it into, you know, uh, making it a viable uh, entertainment product and, and continuing to make it better through incredible challenges, incredible challenges, and uh, not the least of which is the fact that, uh, you know, they've, they've had a hard time getting a, a good t- TV deal. Now they've got ESPN, and God, guys, I, I, it's amazing to me how ESPN is showing more NHL games than NBA games. And yet if you, watch, if you waste your time watching the talking head shows uh, in the afternoon, you know, four thirty, five o'clock, five thirty. That that's that, that kind of time. I'm talking about around, you know, around the horn and and uh, you know the, the show that follows. Pardon the interruption, where they do give it. They, pardon the interruption. Will will give a nod to the NHL. Uh, I won't say regularly, but you know, two three times a week. You know, this time of year perhaps. But but the the show before it and and all the others. You know, the talking heads. They they never talk about the NHL. And on ESPN, ESPN show more NHL games than they are NBA games. Yet a show like Around the Horn is just, it's NBA talk wall to wall. And you can't tell me that, you know, the, the, the drama is any greater in the NBA than it is in the NHL. It's not. And I think that's the next, uh, uh, you know, rung that, uh, that Gary Bettman's got to climb with this league is he's got to somehow get somebody uh, to talk about the league on these talking head shows um, because that's how you really kind of grow the, the interest is you get the casual fan uh, to find out, well, gee, I mean, you know, th- there's great players out there. We don't know anything about them because, we, you know, because two or three shows a, a day constantly talk about the five players that are interesting in the NBA. Um, so it's uh, there's still some more uh, climbing to do for the NHL, a lot of climbing to do, whether they ever get to the mountaintop and become uh, uh, get seen again the way the NBA is being seen now. I don't know if that happens. There was a time back in the 60s and 70s when the NHL was much bigger than the NBA, and uh, it, it could get there again, but it's hard to know. So we'll see, but uh, thanks for bringing that up because, uh, you know, for, for hockey fans, it's, it's, always been, uh, it's always been tough uh, trying to find a, a spot where somebody can talk about the game and talk about it intelligently, which is another challenge that most of the talking heads can't, uh, can't meet. Um, but, you know, that's probably the biggest issue. But, uh, you know, for, for us who follow the game, uh, it, it's, you know, outside of the NHL network, it's hard to find, uh, you know, good commentary on it, and uh, we crave it. Roger, uh, the only uh, or you have in the water oh. with the National Hockey League is not getting a team back into Atlanta. No, but I got a lot to say and just follow up to uh, Roy. I, I totally agree. But if you look, at the players on those shows, the host, they several of them are on the uh, NBA pregame show. That's their whole life is the NBA. And I agree with you, Roy. And I'll tell you what, I don't think the ESPN uh, pregame intermission show uh, uh, can compare to Turner, to TNT. I really don't. I think Turner does a far superior job with the NFL or the NHL than, uh, than, the, uh, than ESPN does. Now, getting back to uh, the expansion, uh, Roy, you weren't even born yet. Uh, Don and I were there in 1967 
you know, October when the Flyers uh, opened up the spectrum and they played the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, opening night, and they didn't know whether hockey was going to uh, last in, in Philadelphia. And uh, when you look at what that uh, draft was for the expansion, where you had the Flyers get two outstanding goalies uh, in the draft. And then you see that uh, from uh, in seven years, they won the first of two Stanley Cups. I think that tells you that that was pretty good parity. And I don't I know, what do you think, Don, Frank? Because uh, we were all there. Well, I think it was a matter of St. Louis and Philadelphia at that time. St. Louis, of course, was in a, a better position uh, conference-wise, but – uh, and uh, uh, they took Philadelphia out the first chance they had to go to the playoffs on an unbelievable shot from the blue line that happened to go in. But uh, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, the Flyers became competitive quite quickly, uh, but the St. Louis Blues, uh, as I recollect, and maybe Roy has a better remember than I do, I think the Blues were a little bit quicker. I think they had a, a more competitive team that was uh, in the hunt early. Well, they also, and by the way, I, I was there. One of the first hockey games I ever attended, uh, Chicago Stadium, was against the Philadelphia Flyers um, because they, it was because they were a fan team. And, yeah. I didn't, yeah. really, seriously, I didn't even think you were that old, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was I was born in 58, so I was I was okay. deep into hockey at that I, point. So. Yeah, but, well, I but thought no, I you remember, were like and, in your mid-50s. Go ahead. No, yeah, well, a lot of people think that when they see me and uh, you know hear me, uh, absolutely, because I'm a young young at heart. Um, but uh, but no, I, I again, the, the expansion rules were different then too. Don't forget that was the I mean that was the dawn of expansion. That was they went from the original six uh, to doubling the size of the league, and they had every, all those other expansion teams in one division and that kind of thing. And uh, so somebody had to come out of that expansion group, in or in other words, and and that's what you had with the Blues and. Right. You know, yes, there were still, I mean, there were, there, there were so many, uh, you know, star level players back in the day. I mean, I, I still think that was, you know, well, to me, there's been a couple of golden eras in, in the NHL and that was certainly one of them. But, you know, when you're an expansion team, you can get a guy like Glenn Hall in goal and, you know, get some of the other players that the, the Blues had and that the Flyers had as well. Um, but you know what? I mean, so it was, a, again, that was a different era, but when, uh, again, to, to go back to the primary, uh, uh, you know, a topic about the difference between the Lightning and the Ottawa Senators and what they dealt with uh, in terms of uh, expansion and what they were trying to get. You know, Tampa was fortunate to get the first overall draft pick uh, that year and got Roman Hammerlick uh, in its first year. But in terms of, uh, I mean, the, the best player they picked up at that time was uh, was Brian Bradley, who was a third-line player and, you know, just barely hanging on in Calgary. Um, and that was the kind of guy you got. At, at best, you got you might have got a third line player who just hadn't been given a chance yet, um, and that's what you got. But now it's it's completely different. You can only, I mean, the last expansion um, for Seattle, uh, teams could only really uh, protect like nine players, ten players total. They could only protect one goaltender. Uh, free agency was was a completely different animal. Uh, you know, just because the the groups had more money. I mean, the the Lightning and, and Senators. Uh, they, look, they struggled to make the payments, and they were only paying, you know, like $50 million. I say only $50 million because, I mean, nowadays it's uh, it's so much more. And then, again, that, that big payment is one reason why uh, expansion will be different in all the leagues going forward because you just can't ask somebody to pay for, 
you know, pay a billion dollars virtually for a franchise and then uh, ask them to, to struggle for the next five years. They, they need to be competitive right off the bat. The only thing I'd like both of you to comment on, the only negative to it, at least in my viewpoint, uh, is they have so many games so late. The late games are either on ESPN or wherever it might be. Uh, you know, when you get Seattle playing, you, you don't get a real chance to see these games until the playoffs. Because how many people are going to be awake at 10 o'clock at night to start to watch a game that doesn't end until 12.30? But there's nothing they can do about it. You really, you, you just have to take the games as they come along. Yeah, I mean, that's, look, that's, that issue has been, that, that has been an issue uh, with, with, with all sports, really. Right. Uh, except football. Um, but, I mean, you have the same issue when, you know, when the Lakers are playing in, in, the, in the playoffs and in, in the NBA. You have the same issue in baseball, you know. It, you can start a game, you know, at five o'clock, and then they've done that on occasion. Um, you know, and I, you might see you might see some earlier starts here in the in the West Finals, um, but uh, but we'll see how that how that shakes out. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just that's just an issue that everybody's kind of had to deal with. Um, you know, but I will say this: uh, ESPN and, uh, and and TNT, PBS have done a great job of featuring those teams. Um, yeah, if you're fortunate enough to be able to stay up late, um, you're fortunate to see some pretty darn good hockey. Um, but if you can't stay up late, you can only hang in there for one period. Well, uh, you know, we do live in an era where you can stream these things, tape them. Uh, I mean, I've done that on a couple of occasions uh, this year. Uh, you know, couldn't hang in there for for a third period, and so I just I, I taped it and made sure I uh, caught up on it uh, the next day. Um, so there's ways to do it, and um, and hopefully uh, people are, are realizing that. Again, they do every year with the playoffs. That the NHL is a great product, and there's uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on there for sure. Roger, well, we got to also send out uh, congratulations to our friend Keith Jones, Jonesy, uh, the now the president of hockey operations, but basically he's really running the show uh, from top of the. Uh, uh, the organization all the way down, and uh, Danny Briere is the new general manager, and uh, they're going to be doing a lot of different things um, uh, marketing-wise. And uh, uh, I'll tell you, I just am uh, I'm so happy. I've heard a number of interviews. I did text him when that was announced, and uh, he got back to me. So I'm really happy for him. I think they picked the right guy. And, uh, you know, he's a hockey guy. He can handle uh, the media. And as they were saying on, uh, with Glenn uh, McNow and uh, Mike Silski on Saturday, uh, he worked for uh, Angelo Cataldi. And if you can work for Angelo with what he used to demand for that morning show, you can work for anybody. And uh, what do you think about that, Don and, and Frank? I know Frank and I talked about a little bit uh, during the week, another franchise going to the media to bring in a uh, a director, whether being president of the club or general manager, another organization that uh, is going to the media to bring in a guy that they think can turn things around. Well, I'll tell you what I, I like I, about I, it. Go ahead, I'll tell you what I like about it. I, what I like about <laughs> it is that Keith Jones is a, is a flyer. He, he's yeah. in Philadelphia, you know, not born and bred, but but almost, you know, pretty close to it. And that's his franchise. And I, I think maybe one of the things that the Flyers and, – and I've all, look, I've always looked at the Flyers, guys, 
as a, just a little bit unique. I mean, I think they're a, they're a different organization. Uh, going back to, as you guys have, have clearly pointed out, going back to their, you know, their, their, their early years when they were, uh, you know, back in the mid-70s when, when, you know, they were the Broad Street Bullies. They played a certain brand of hockey that, that energized that community, um, made them very tough to beat. And I think, to be honest, um, that's their best hockey. It, they, they don't need to be a, 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 a necessarily a fast team. They just need to be a hard to play tough team. When you're when you've played the Flyers, you're going to know you've been in a game, and and I think Keith Jones knows that. It's why they brought in John Tortorella. Uh, I think it's why they've got Danny Briere in there. I think they realize that there is a certain kind of team that the Flyers need to be to energize that community and get the fans back. And that, that style of team can still win uh, in this day and age, in, in an era where uh, there's more skill and talent and, and speed in the game than there ever, ever has been. Uh, there's still a, uh, a way to, to mold that team uh, and, and be tough as nails. And uh, you know what? We, we, we've seen it in Seattle. Because the teams that are uh, – in fact, you're, and, you're, and you're seeing it elsewhere too. I mean, you know, Dallas is like that. Uh, Colorado, not like that. Edmonton, not like that. Uh, uh, Toronto, not like that. And, and look who's out in the playoffs. Um, you know, Tampa is uh, more of a real blend, but you know, there is you can be really gritty and, and grind it out, be that kind of a team with enough skill. Uh, and I think that's what the Flyers are going to be. I'm, I'm anxious to see how it uh, works out for them because, uh, again, you got Keith Jones who just He's a flyer. He's, he's part of that. I mean, he, he bleeds orange, and, uh, and good for him because I think it's going to be darn good for that organization. I'm anxious to see what they do, and I think they'll be back sooner now as a result of those uh, those additions. I agree with you, uh, Roy. Also, uh, uh, you know, when you think about it, there are two teams in my mind for the last couple of years, one being the Flyers and the other being Montreal. I can't imagine those two teams going the length of time that they've gone without really being competitive, real competitive, not just challenging to get into the playoffs, not getting into the playoffs, but making some hay in the playoffs. And those two franchises, I mean, as you said, they're story franchises, and they're sitting in the wings back looking at everybody else. Roger? Went downhill after Red Snyder passed away. Absolutely. Because uh, whoever was in charge for Comcast Spectacore did not have the passion uh, for uh, the team, for the game. I mean, it was Ed Snyder's blood. He was but there. Roy, how about Montreal? Game. I mean, how could you expect Montreal to be this bad for this long? Well, nobody expected it. That's for sure. Um, you know, they, they. But you know what? They they, they made a couple of uh, questionable moves. Uh, Look, they were hurt as well by nobody expected Carey Price um, to, to disappear the way he has and, and to come up with the, the, you know, the humanitarian struggles that he's dealing with, just the human struggles that he's had, he's had problems with here the last few years. You know, that hurt them. Uh, they had a couple of defensemen who, who could no longer play for him that they, they were building around um, that, you know, that made them viable. And, and, and when you lose that kind of veteran player, uh, you know, like they have, they've lost uh, some key veterans over the last few years, and they've tried to, you know, work their way back, and they will get there. Uh, again, I think, uh, you know, management matters a lot, and, and I think management is solid there. 
and I and I really think the world of Marty St. Louis as a as a coach. I think he's he's showing that uh, uh, this team's got uh, it's got more in it than than people think, and uh, they uh, they spent a year building building those building that team a little bit, giving some of the young kids an opportunity to prove what they can do. Um, they've got a year of uh, tape on those guys now, and uh, that's going to allow them to to do some good evaluation and determine what they need next and uh, going forward. Uh, if you're going to be in a slump like that, you just got to make sure you draft well. And uh, I think they have, and I think they will continue to do so. Tell us touching on baseball before we run out of time, Roy, in this first half hour. Uh, the Rays came into Yankee Stadium in a split four-game series. They won the first game easily, and they could have won any one of the other three, but they didn't, so they wound up splitting the series two and two. They won last night as they moved across town to take on the Mets. It's nothing, nothing in the third inning and tonight. Uh, but these, this race team is no fluke. This this team is playing very, very, very well. Yeah, it really is. And uh, that you know, <laughs> contrary to what the what what some radio hosts in New York think, uh, they're not cheating. Uh, they're just playing good baseball, and they're capable of. It. And what's amazing is what they've been able to keep this going despite losing some some pretty darn good players, uh, particularly right. starting pitchers. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much longer they can keep it up, but the difference is this team is hitting home runs. They're hitting right, for right, power. Right, 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 right. And uh, and that's what's really, uh, really surprised everybody is that this team has become a, a power team. Um, you know, you got to usually, you usually have to pay for power. Um, the Rays don't have the money to pay for power, but uh, they've been getting it out of, out of their players. And I guess that's where the, you know, some of the disgruntled uh, Yankees fans believe they might be cheating, but uh you want to go ahead and cork, you know, open up those bats, and you, I, I doubt you'll find any cork in them. But uh, they're just uh, they're, they're smart players, and and they coach extremely well. And uh, I think the Rays are just a, a very good example of how uh, the game is supposed to be played. I mean, there's, there's there are certain ways, you know, taking good at bats, being smart about how you how you handle uh, hitters as a pitcher, uh, defense and pitching. I mean, uh, that's that's what wins you games, and the Rays just excel in those areas. Well, I'll tell you, hey, Roy, Roy once you again, go, this first half wanted... hour goes by so fast, we hardly have a chance to get to two or three different topics before we're out of time. And uh, I'll tell you, it, uh, next week we'll spend a little more time on baseball, talk a little bit more about that, not only the Rays, but uh, sort of go up and down the Eastern and Western divisions of both uh, the National and the American League and see where they stand a, a couple of weeks into May. So uh, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it, and we'll get together again next week. Thanks for having me, Don. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bill Matthews is on the line right now, and Bill, of course, has been the official scorer at the top since uh, day one, and also an outstanding college coach as well. And I got a question for him off the top of the program. Uh, Roger Henler and I were talking, Roger, in Atlanta uh, earlier this week. Uh, I had a a grandson that uh, is a, a baseball player, and he tells me, and I'd never heard of this, and, Bill, maybe you could fill me in on it. Now when you buy a, a top-flight glove uh, and you're a baseball player, you have to send it to somebody to break it in. I mean, I never heard of such a thing. I never – I mean, you spend hours breaking your glove in just the way you want it, and now these kids have to send the glove away to have it broken in. Is this – I mean, is this true? I have never heard of – first of all, let me say hello to everybody in uh, – God bless us yeah, all. We're always here. good to Tommy hear G. from you, Bill. We're, we're, we're here in uh, in the name of Tommy G and uh, 
we miss it, but uh, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I have never, ever heard, and I've been in baseball now since, gosh, 1977. I've never heard of anybody breaking in a glove for someone. And, and <laughs> I, I, uh, it, it, it's kind of like, like the, the families that are having elective Tommy John in order to make their kids throw harder. It's one of those ridiculous myths that they think actually works. Um, you, you can't have somebody else break your glove in because they don't have the same size hand that you do. So, come on. Don't tell me. I couldn't believe it. I said, this is unbelievable to me. And it, you know, it used, to, it used to be so much fun. You always had one glove you played with and one glove you were breaking in to be That's ready right. to play with the next time you wanted to. I mean, it, I don't know. But let's get to something a little more important. We've, we've had a chance now <laughs> to look at all the new rules, uh, what's happened, what hasn't happened. Uh, you're there every day. You see it from the press box. You score it. Uh, the only thing I'm uh, not unha- not happy about is is the uh, ghost ghost runner in the tenth inning. And other than that, <laughs> I'm on board. Well, give us some of your thoughts. Well, I, I think the fact that the games are now 205 to 245 is a great change. Um, I think the quality of life of the players has certainly changed a great deal because they're home probably an hour and a half to two hours before they normally would be. I think it gets the hitters in a rhythm. I think it gets the pitchers in a rhythm. Um, I think the the ghost runner, again, that's that's purely a speed-up rule. Uh, They've been using it here in Florida with the junior colleges since the early 80s. Uh, just, just to speed games up because, you know, the junior colleges play, yeah, they play 120 games a year, so they're trying to get as many games in as they can. Um, I think overall the changes are great. We haven't had too many violations. Um, I, I also supervise on nights that I don't score at the drop, so I have four games on my laptop that I watch. And if the scorers have issues, they, they send me a Slack message, and I give them my input. And I really haven't seen too many violations in terms of time. You know, the batter being ready by eight seconds, the pitcher getting ready by 15 or 30 or 20, depending on where we are in the uh, in the inning with base runners and such. Um, I, I think the changes, for the most part, are fantastic. Uh, the ghost runner, that's nothing but a speed-up rule. And unfortunately, it's there to stay. It's an unearned run, but it also saves arms. And... You know, we've seen with so many teams going through two, three Tommy Johns for their staffs. I think saving arms is uh, is a good thing because we spend a lot of money and we have a lot of incentive clauses that that trigger these uh, these these injuries because guys are trying to maximize their potential and trying to do what they can to make as much money as they can at the end of the year or during arbitration. So, overall, I'm in favor for sure. Roger, you're up. Yeah, Bill, a uh, c- couple of things. Uh, the uh, I had done uh, some research uh, on your uh, your college uh, because a friend of mine that uh, I sub, well, he's a long-term sub now, and he's going to be doing some coaching uh, football in the fall, and we've had him on the show. Um, the uh, Chris Jensen, his son, Larson, is a, um, a a sophomore in high school, and he got hit the night before last, flush in an eye, uh, oh. with a batted ball, and oh uh, 
Yeah, he uh, was. I I talked to Chris uh, yesterday. Or communicated with him after uh, to find out what happened, and he had a concussion. Uh, they do not know whether he's going to lose his eyesight in that eye or not. Oh, and uh, but I was just wondering whether uh, you know we all know and remember the Herb score Gil McDougal uh, hit back in the fifties. Uh, but I was just wondering that in your long career, whether you ever had a similar uh, type of injury, uh, and, and if so, uh, how did it all work out? Well, that, that's an interesting question because in 1996, um, we were playing St. Leo University, and I was coaching third base. I had a guy on second. I got him set. I had my hands on my knees, and I looked in at home plate. This is my number three hitter who went on and played in the Angels organization made it to AAA, kid named Chris Peckham from West Bridgewater, Mass. Turned on a fastball, and it came on me quicker than I could move. So I turned my head. The ball hit me just below the temple at the top of my jaw. Wow. And my face my face blew up like, like a balloon. Um, that was part of what changed. I was part of the... Uh, the uh, not the investigation, but I guess the, the information gathering of going from minus five bats down to a minus three, which is more like a wood bat. Mm-hmm. And I was involved in that because they, they did a reaction test, and I had I had no chance to move. All I could do was turn my head. I looked towards left field. The ball hit my mandible joint, and uh, I only had a, a hairline fracture, which I was very, very fortunate. If it hit me two inches higher, we wouldn't be having this conversation tonight. So mm-hmm. um, aluminum bats are dangerous. Exit speeds are dangerous. They've done what they can to equalize the aluminum bat to the wood bat, but it's still it's still the exit speed, which is six to ten miles an hour faster than the pitch is thrown to the batter when he hits it. So when a pitcher lets the ball go or when a corner guy is up on the grass, you don't have a lot of reaction time. So, yeah, I can speak personal experience on that. Um, it's, it's no fun. I was on milkshakes. For about a month, uh, I didn't mm. have to get my jaw wired, but I still have uh, I still have an indentation in my right uh, mandible joint where the uh, where the ball hit me. So wow. yeah, it's uh, it's dangerous and it's scary. Um, I've not had a player, thank God. I had I had two players hit in the back of the head from catchers throwing to second base, but I never had a pitcher get hit with a ball off the bat. Um, I had a couple of batters get hit. In the lower abdomen region, when they squared the bunt, um, but I never had uh, an exit speed injury. I was I was fortunate in the 28 years I coached college baseball not to have that happen. Thank well, God. I'll say that's uh, you know, and, and as Roger said, that's something everybody you hope for that injuries are a part of all sports, and you just hope that uh, for the very very best for all the kids that something doesn't happen. As you said, it could happen to you. It could happen to one of the players on your team. And uh, nobody could feel more sorry than the coaches and the players themselves for the youngster that has that kind of a, a problem. Uh, getting back for a moment, there was a lot written this week, Bill, uh, nationally, about the electronic umpiring. Uh, talked about a couple of things that uh, uh, I did not realize. Uh, I don't know whether you've had any exposure to it or not, but they said that the, uh, the electronic umpiring uh, the 
signal between the strike and the and the umpire actually knowing it's a strike. He said the only difficulty is if there's a foul ball, that it's uh, the machine still calls the strike, uh, but it's a foul ball. But the umpire has to, to of course, uh, jump in and say, you know, uh, it doesn't differentiate between that. Uh, have you had any exposure at all to the automatic system yet? No, I have not, um, and, and, and I, I equate it to the driverless car. They say, say that they, again? I said, no, I've not had any contact with uh, with the electronic uh, umpires, but I right. equate it to I, I equate it to the driverless car. Mm-hmm. The driverless car is now out on the road, and there's nobody driving. Right. If the umpire's behind home plate, let him do his job. Don't let a machine do his job. Let him do the job. Let him drive. I don't think that the the uh, the electronic umpire is going to be a good thing for baseball. I think it's going to eliminate a lot of the the feel of the game. I don't have a better way to describe it. You know, I, I think the banter between coaches, players, and umpires is a good thing. And I think if you take the ability to call balls and strikes away from the umpire, I think you're robbing the game of its soul. Roger, you take you take out excitement, Bill. There's a For lot sure. of excitement, you know. And uh, how did the you know we talked about the Rays with uh, Roy, uh, and and I heard uh, on some talk shows uh, nationally about uh, fans calling in and not necessarily uh, Rays fans, but they have become. Rays fans because of how well they're playing and and uh, the team is exciting uh, that they, they think that would be a great team to as of now if the World Series because they think they would get a a, a big uh, a bump in uh, in in uh, viewers because they really are a team that's gotten taken the country by storm in many ways. Do you agree <laughs> with that? Yeah, you know I, I've had. A hundred conversations in the last three weeks with people saying, you know, are they for real? And the best way I can describe it is they're, they're a team of, of players that nobody really wanted. And as a result mm-hmm. of not being wanted, um, they, 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 they kind of banded together and they said, hey, you know what? Let, let's do a better job of controlling the strike zone, both as hitters and as pitchers. I talked to Chad Matola. And Chad said, you know, the biggest difference between last year and this year is that guys are a year older, they're a year smarter, and they're not swinging at bad pitches. The other side of the coin is they have the ability to swing at bad pitches because they, they, one of the things they look for in hitters and position players is eye-hand coordination. And they do a lot of testing about this. And these guys are just, they're off the charts in terms of their eye-hand coordination. So... If they can get hitters to, to be selective, I mean, look at they've got five guys in double figures and home runs, mm. and nobody knows nobody knows who three of the five guys are. I could ask anybody <laughs> on the street who are the five guys leading the Rays in home runs, and they'd be like, uh, I don't know, Longoria, you know? <laughs> yeah, they have they have no idea. So it's it's really a, a, a phenomenon. I, I can't describe it in any other way. The way they select their players is so analytic and so scientific. Uh, it's it's really pretty fascinating because they have a team of guys that were let go. They have a team of guys uh, like Littell, 
Nobody would have expected Littell to have a surface with another team. He looks like a lumberjack on the mound. He goes out last night, and he's just strike, 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 breaking ball, strike. I mean, they're finding guys who fit their mold, and they have a definite mold for pitchers and for hitters. You know, the injuries, injuries are going to happen. It's not the way they do things. It's not because of the opener. It's not because they're forcing guys. Injuries are going to happen. You can't, you can't control it. We saw in the WBC. You know, one of the best pitchers in the game goes down celebrating a victory. I mean, there's an assumption of risk that you have every time you step on the field. But the way they do things, I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe it's something they're putting in the Kool-Aid, but these guys are pretty damn good. Hey, man. Brother, leading again tonight, one nothing. You're playing in the bottom of the fourth inning, and uh, we'll wait and see what happens against uh, the New York Mets tonight. But they had a big series in, of course, New York. We just talked about the 2-2 two and two over the weekend, and, uh, Bill, I think the one thing that surprised me more than anything else was that uh, the way the two teams, other than the first game, which uh, the Rays won handily, I think it was 8-2 to two, if I remember correctly, but after that, they were behind by five runs or they were six runs ahead. I mean, sure. very, very unusual to play two top teams and be six runs behind and lose the game or, or be five runs ahead and hold on to win 8-7. to seven. I mean, it, very unusual the way that series turned out. To quote a uh, very well but unnamed, very well known but unnamed football coach, that's why we play the games. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There's, uh, there's a lot of reasons we play 162 times, and one of them is because of the anomaly of you can get just destroyed on a Monday night and come back and win on a Tuesday, and then go on an eight-game win streak and then lose by 15. So. The unpredictability of the game is what makes it beautiful. That's what keeps us all involved. Roger? Bill, you you said it, uh, couldn't say it any better. And uh, my uh, oldest granddaughter's in sixth grade, plays uh, travel and, and also rec softball. She played 85 games from March to uh, last year. And <laughs> oh in the last two, yeah, the last two weekends, she's already played 18. So, you know, so, and you're right. And you can go from winning by 19 to one to by losing by 16 to one in the next game. So it's you're in, exactly right. Yeah. it's incredible. And, you know, I tell the story all the time of playing university of Tampa, one of the powers in division two, and we got beat 36 to five. We gave up six touchdowns in a baseball game. And I brought my team together after the game and everybody expected me to implode. And I said, so what? The beauty of baseball is that it's not football. We come back tomorrow. We have two games tomorrow. Let's just see what happens. The guys were like, wow. <laughs> we thought we were going to get ripped. <laughs> and then we went out, we won the doubleheader, and we, and we took the series. So you never know. You can be humiliated and embarrassed. But so what? You play so many games in baseball that's the beauty and the attraction of the game. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. But the beautiful thing is there is a tomorrow. It's not a week tomorrow. down the road. It's not, it's not two days off and then a game. It's day after day after day. And that's what keeps us coming back. And you just well, hope it's not that last game. <laughs> it's not the seventh yeah. game of a series or the third game exactly. of a playoff series. It's best two out of three. You hope it's not one of those games that that crops up. But you're exactly yeah. right. It's a it's a great game, and, and that's what makes it so great because the next day, and one of the things I think that uh, the Phillies had last year, 
when they had to change managers. Uh, the manager they brought in was a longtime uh, baseball man, and I think, uh, Roger, you followed very closely, and I know Bill does as well. Uh, he sort of brought a different attitude to the dugout and well, said, sure look, did. relax, just go out and play. You guys are all major league players, and they wound up going to the World Series. So how can you tell? Yeah, well, you can't, but, you know, and I, but, I, I, I played college baseball for Bill Livesey, one of the great baseball minds. Director of scouting and player development for the Yankees. He signed Posada. He signed Jeter. He signed all the great players that, that brought the dynasty back. And he said to us, the best phrase in baseball is, so what? You lose a game, so what? You make an error, so what? You don't get a hit, you strike out with the bases loaded, so what? Tomorrow you get a chance to do it again. And that makes so much sense to me, you know? It's, uh, it's a game of so what. Just come back and do it again the next time. It's not the end of the world. That's that's the beauty of the game. Yeah, but well, in Bill, the I want to thank you as always won. very, very much for uh, joining us. Pat Williams is on the line right now. He's going to follow you, Great. and I'll tell you, he's following somebody that has their nose in that baseball from start to finish. But Bill, thank you very, very much, and we'll see you at the trop. Fantastic company, guys. Uh, as always, thanks for the opportunity. Been here, Bill. Thank you. All right, you so bye, much. guys. Pat Williams standing by right now. Of course, Pat, a uh, longtime participant in our show, which we always appreciate. Uh, Pat's been in the headlines the last couple of, uh, well, I guess the last week and a half. They had pictures of when he was general manager of the, of the Philadelphia 76ers, and then they had pictures of when he took over the Magic, and then they had pictures of him today as an author. And uh, Pat Williams, you're you're moving in all different circles right now, but the one thing that they picture you're still trying to get that baseball team into Orlando. Well, that's right. Hey, Don, first of all, <clears throat> who was Bill you were just talking to? Bill Bill Matthews, the uh, 21 years baseball coach, but more importantly been the official scorer at the Trop for 20 years. Got it. Got it. And I, I like that Bill Livesey story. So what? So what? <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, you, you you were basketball for a long time, but you were baseball long before that. That's so right. My roots are, my roots are in baseball. I I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. I had a wonderful break in life. My best friend was Rooley Carpenter, whose dad <clears throat> owned the Phillies for many many years. And as a youngster, a baseball crazy kid, you know, I would uh, go up to Shy Park on the weekends for back in the days of the Whiz Kids and all and. And then we would go to spring training uh, in Clearwater during spring break. And so I had some wonderful breaks and uh, went on to Wake Forest and caught there uh, for four years. Uh, And the one club bidding for my services, the Phillies won out. um, $500 bonus, $400 a month. And and (laughs) off I went to Miami in the Florida State League, reported to my manager, Andy Semenek, uh, the old whiz kids catcher, and and that's where it all started for me. That was 61 years ago, and uh, played two years of, in the farm system. Then got into the Phillies front office in their minor league system, and that led to uh, joining the 76ers in 1968 when Jack Ramsey hired me. Uh, I left baseball. That was really my first opportunity in, in a in a major league setting. And that launched a, a 51-year career in the NBA. But uh, baseball's always been a big part of my life. We tried to bring 
Major League Baseball here to Orlando in the 1991 period. And uh, then again in the mid-90s, uh, Miami got one team. Uh, the um, St. Pete people got the other one. And so we've kept working at it, and uh, now we're back in it. And hope we can pull this off. Well, you've, you've talked about it many times with us over the last few shows that uh, you have all the information at, uh, at your fingertips. You've got the diagrams for the ballpark. You've got guaranteed season tickets for, I think you said, 10,000 or a little around 10,000. Uh, you've got a lot, of, a lot of information to put on the table. And uh, now it's just a matter of uh, are they going to expand in some other area or are they going to expand into Orlando? And what is your latest thought? Well, Don, there are two ways of getting a team. You either move an existing team or you wait for expansion. And the commissioner four years ago announced that, uh, yes, expansion is coming. Uh, He wants to get to 32 teams, uh, break it down, I think, into eight divisions of four and uh, and go go with a different look. And uh, obviously one of the expansion teams would be West. Uh, One would be East. Uh, the best we can see with Vegas now gone, uh, well, you're down now to Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, and Portland. In the east, uh, the way I look at it, uh, they keep mentioning Charlotte, but Charlotte's not doing anything. And then they, they um, I don't think they go back to Montreal. And so uh, it comes down, I guess, to Nashville and Orlando. Uh, on the expansion front. And and in the middle of all this is what's going to become of the Rays? Uh, what's going to become of uh, a new ballpark possibility? So many unanswered questions over there. Uh, but we're watching it all very carefully and closely and uh, paying attention to it all, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. Roger? Pat, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh Number one, uh, I like your updated picture on uh, Facebook. I'm not much into Facebook, but uh, I saw that uh, you had an updated picture. Don was talking about all the photos. What years were you at Wake Forest? I went there in uh, 1958. I graduated in June of 62. Uh, I was there in the uh, Billy Packer, Lenny Chapel era, uh, Bones McKinney, uh, Norm Sneed was the great quarterback uh, when I was there. Uh, uh, Brian Piccolo uh, was a Wake Forest guy when I was there. Yeah. Uh, that was my era. And Yeah, uh, I was down there. Uh, a four- friend of mine played, played on the golf team, and he was from Springfield High School, Dick Marsh. And uh, Brian Piccolo was in his fraternity, as I recall. And uh, you know, got to meet him, but didn't know that uh, that was <laughs> that uh, I was meeting Brian Piccolo. Uh, that you know uh, is le- it's a legend, obviously. But it's a great school, yeah. beautiful campus, and uh, uh, I've been to Wake Forest several times since, obviously. But uh, you know, you barely have had a, a outstanding career, and, and when you think about all the different accomplishments that you have had. That uh, the other that leagues and teams have followed you, okay, uh, in a lot of these uh, innovations. Well, listen, I think what we want to do here, 
in Orlando because it's the entertainment capital of the world, really. It's, it's certainly the, the tourist destination of the world. And people, when they come here, uh, they want to be entertained. And so I think one of our challenges is how do you present baseball in a way that it's never been presented before? Uh, we're trying to imagine uh, uh, Walt Disney, P.T. Barnum, Bill Veck, and Jesse Cole, <laughs> you know, all merged together. And, and how would they present big league baseball on a nightly basis? Uh, I think that's one of the challenges that lies in front of us uh, so that fans, regardless of what's going on in the field or having the time of their life and being entertained in a way that they couldn't even imagine. I think that's the challenge that would, would lie in front of us. When you say that, uh, Pat, uh, you, you had your oar in the water a couple of times already, and uh, it, it's so difficult. And as you mentioned, everybody is still waiting to see what's going to happen in St. Pete. We've talked about it many times with you and with people within the, the community about uh, is it moving along? Is there going to be a stadium? Can they build it in Tampa? Can they build it in St. Pete? I don't think they can build it in St. Pete under any circumstances myself. But uh, to me, uh, you've done all the groundwork. You've done all the groundwork, and it's just, just uh, as you just uh, explained, you're pretty much down to two cities if you're looking at teams in the East, right? Well, that's true, and uh, you've got to have four things done to pull this off. Number one, uh, you've got to have the marketplace uh, for baseball to accept. We feel good. Orlando is now the 17th largest media market in North America. It's the largest media market that doesn't have a Major League Baseball team. It's a larger media market than 10 existing uh, Major League franchises. Secondly, you've got to have a ballpark uh, and uh, that baseball will approve of. And that's, I think uh, that's the, the key. Well, Don, the price of ballparks is not cheap. Um mm-hmm. When we started four years ago, it looked like the price of a ballpark was up about a billion two. Uh, in our announcement last week, uh, we 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 said it, it's a billion seven, and and we've got we're going to Orange County to request nine hundred and seventy-five million uh, from uh, the Orange County uh, tourist bed tax situation. We we would have to raise privately the other seven hundred million. Uh, it, it's a huge undertaking. Third, uh, you've got to have a, a front office that knows what they're doing. Uh, running a professional sports team is, is not for amateurs. Uh, you've got to have experience. You've got to know what you're doing. You, it's, a, it's a specialized business, and uh, we feel good about that. And then fourth, uh, you've got to have an owner. Uh, you've got to have an owner with, with deep pockets, obviously, but he's He's got to fit into the baseball culture, which is very conservative. Uh, he's got to uh, have a feel for Orlando and, you know, and fit into this market. And fourth, that owner's going to like baseball. He's got to enjoy baseball. He's got to be able to navigate 162 ball games and 30 spring training games and six minor league teams and uh, off season and free agency and winter meetings. And it's a huge, it's a huge undertaking. And uh, so we're trying to find that right guy as 
as is Nashville, as is Portland. Um, so uh, those are the four things you have to have. Well, I saw this week uh, they just came was yesterday or the day before they came out with the uh, definitive numbers for Vegas. Uh, the stadium is uh, a billion and a half, and uh, they moved into what the Tropicana location. They're going to tear the Tropicana down and uh, build the new location, not the original location that they uh, were going to buy the land uh, outside the Strip. They've changed that. So your numbers are pretty correct. Uh, they, they're already saying a billion and a half to start. Yeah, that's, that's what it looks like, Don. And uh, with the challenge from our mayor four years ago that uh, he made it clear, he said this has got to be a tourist attraction unto itself uh, where visitors from around the world who come here would want to see this ballpark uh, because of, uh, of its uniqueness, uh, even if there's no game. And so that's what we've been doing, trying to uh, get a ballpark built like that, that uh, visitors would say, boy, we go to Disney, we do Universal, but man, oh man, we gotta, we got to see Dreamland Park somewhere on our trip. <laughs> so that, that's what we're trying to get built here. Roger, we'll let you round out this segment. Pat, i got to tell you, it's, it's all a matter of drawing uh, people in any business today. Uh, my uncle sent me a uh, magazine article uh, that they have opened up uh, the uh, eastern side of the Long Island uh, Railroad into uh, Grand Central. And I don't know whether you've ever seen it. It's below all of the existing Grand Central. They've been working on it since the 70s. And if you see a picture of it, it's spectacular, like you're going into a different world. So here, when you're at a train station, it's now all this, all this glitz and technology and everything. But you're exactly right. That's what you have to do today is to uh, be able to draw. Now, my question is, uh, when you mentioned Salt Lake City, uh, I haven't been there in years, but uh, when uh, my daughter was playing AAU uh, basketball and they uh, won their uh, uh, their uh, age group in New Jersey, we were and she's 43 now, but we were out there, and that's when it was a single-A ballpark, and it was a dump. And that was when Ryan Luzinski was first drafted, and you probably remember that, out of Holy uh, Cross High School. And uh, and and he that's where he went when he first got drafted. So it was a big deal. But I guess they have a new ballpark. But, see, I haven't been there in a long time. You know more than I do. Well, do Roger, they would have to get a, they'd have to get a new ballpark built. Uh, they yeah. had AAA baseball there for many years and done well. Uh, but they would need a new ballpark as well, and they'd be looking at the same price structure and, uh, probably the same architects. Uh, the one thing they've got right now is ownership. Uh, Larry Miller, uh, who passed away, but he owned the Jazz and many auto dealerships. They've all been sold, and his his widow, you know, is sitting on a I don't know, I guess about close to five billion dollars. Mm. And in the announcement, she looks like she would be the lead owner, and uh, so they're, they've got they've got that going for them. They've got to get they would have to get a ballpark built, uh, but there's nothing else out west. Vegas is gone now, and uh, I I have my doubts about Portland. 
And it looks like Salt Lake could well be in the in the pole position here out west. Wow. Pat, one last thing. Uh, you were in the pole yeah. position to bring the magic into Orlando when nobody thought it was possible. Uh, you had a young club this year. You have the Rookie of the Year in the National Basketball Association. Uh, some of your thoughts uh, about the playoffs this year and, and, and the way the NBA is being structured. Well, Don, the playoffs are going, I think, very well. Interesting games, uh, games that uh, uh, rivet you to the TV set. Uh, for tonight, we we got the Celtics going after Miami, and who saw right. Miami doing this? And who would have thought way back that the Lakers would have would got have gotten this far? Um, it's going to be very, very interesting. A betting man, um, probably Boston and and Denver in the finals. Uh, that would be my bet. Uh, the lottery last night, boy, oh, boy. I've never seen such so much interest. Uh, Pat, let me this, ask you this. Did you ever see a team lucky enough to get three big men, starting with the Admiral Robinson? Every uh, time in the draft, they get the first pick, and they get the best guy in the world. Don, I, 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 <laughs> I got to tell you, I was not real happy last night, although – uh, having that big guy go to the West was all right. Okay, let's keep him out there. But you're <laughs> right. They, they had a terrible year way back. They end up with David Robinson. Had to wait two years uh, for his naval uh, career. Right. Then they get him. They're, they, they, and then injuries, and they were bad again. And and two years later, here comes Tim Duncan, the best big man. You know, maybe the greatest power forward of all time. And now they've they've been way down and they're struggling and struggling and here it's one thing to win the lottery but it's also an, important to win it when you got a great player sitting there. Unbelievable! Her, unbelievable! It is unbelievable and and the one constant is Greg Popovich, who's now seventy five years old. Uh, he's going to be totally rejuvenated in the Hall of Fame. Kid. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he, he normally he'd be home sitting uh, clipping coupons, but uh, <laughs> he'll be absolutely energized and come come back, and it'll be like a thirty year old, you know, with with this big guy uh, who's meant to be, you know, just spectacular. We'll all get to see him. Um, oh, well, we Pat, I got to jump out now, but thank you very very much as thank always you, for. Uh, you know, getting on with us and talking about so Always many different great, things Pat. of real importance to the listeners. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Don. All the best. And and by the way, one closing note, anybody of your listeners who is interested in helping getting baseball to Orlando, go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. Orlandodreamers.com. You can help us. Gotcha. Pat, I'd like to know why that guy that uh, from France wasn't playing in the NBA previously when he's 19 years old. That's what I don't understand. He's he's been he's still been in high school over there. Hold on, boys. We got to go to we got to go to the next segment. Thank you very very much. We can talk about this all night long. Trevor Bezos is on the line right now with us, and uh, young man that we've talked to USFL the last couple of weeks, and he's on with us again tonight. So. Uh, he knows so much more about the USFL than Roger or myself or Frank. And uh, so let's bring him in. Trevor, what do you got for us this week? Thank you guys very much for having me again this Wednesday. really appreciate that. Always a pleasure, um, Trevor. Thank you very much. This past weekend was kind of uh, jam-packed, full of 
weird things that occurred for week five in the USFL. Every underdog on the spreadsheet won. Um, every team in the Northern Conference is now two and three. So it, it's tied up north. Um, completely, it seems one-sided because the, the Southern Conference just seems like they're way more loaded with just better teams. But speaking of a, a show, a friend of the show, Papali, he had a couple really good catches again this weekend. He did sadly fumble the ball in the third down, but it was a hospital ball thrown by Cole Kelly. He got just lit up. Um, I, I didn't blame him for it, but uh, the, the showboats won again, uh, their second week in a row. Pittsburgh Maulers look incredibly good. Troy Williams got Offensive Player of the Week. He was, he's the Pittsburgh Maulers quarterback. Uh, 243 total yards, three touchdowns, really efficient, throwing the ball. Um, but other than that, it was a really exciting week of football. And uh, anything you guys wanted to know about? Roger, go to it. Well, no, the uh, I saw I was watching watching one of the games, Trevor, uh, over the weekend, and uh, you know they were talking about I forget uh, uh, this is one of the featured games, but talk about the uh, the two quarterbacks that were on. I guess it was what uh, the Saturday game, right? Um, was it the New Orleans game? Or was like the uniforms blue or? You know the team names by chance? Well, it was it, it was on uh, it was on Fox, okay? Because I know they're also on NBC, but uh, they were talking. See, it's quarterbacks that I'm not familiar with, uh, but they were saying that uh, this uh, one guy has had a really good uh, season, and uh, you know, and and uh, and I admit, I mean, I'm watching it just for uh, to see the football and uh, try to see when they talk about the certain players, but I don't know their names, you know, so I'm not knowledgeable about the league like you are. And it might have been uh, – go ahead. On Saturday, I believe you're talking about either the Philadelphia team with Case Cookus. Um, there was actually a big event that happened in that game. Their field goal uh, – their, their kicker, Luis Aguilar, he made – eight field goals for eight. He was eight for eight on the day. He scored every point for the team and they won the game. So it, it, a guy changed his life in a game this past weekend. Kind of, kind of awesome. He's definitely going to get a call from some kind of NFL squad for a practice squad audition or something. I mean, going eight for eight, that, that I think tied a professional kicking record. What's How did the show voters do this weekend? And Vince Papali's son, how did they make out? Oh, that's what he just said, Don. Why did you hear him say who they played? Yeah. Uh, the Memphis ahead, Showboats Trevor. played. Uh, the Memphis Showboats played the New Orleans Breakers, and this game was, you know, you, you went into this game. The, the Breakers were four and zero. The Showboats were one and three. Right. No one really expected them to win this game by any means, but they came out and beat the Breakers seventeen to ten. You didn't expect them to win the first game. They were over three, and you you didn't think they were going to win the first game. Now they've won two in a row. Yeah, no, it's crazy how things can change. And Todd Haley's made some coaching adjustments, and they just look like a better club. But Papali had some good catches. He did have that fumble, but again, he did get like lit up in that in that defensive back area of the field. But he's a very sure-handed receiver for them, and. He's just old reliable, in, in all honesty. Whenever you need someone to catch it, he's normally there. He's always on his assignment, always runs the correct route. 
if there's a mistake, it's typically on the quarterback. And you saw a couple of those this past weekend from their quarterback, Cole Kelly. But ever since he's became the starter, they're 2-1. and one. And I, I know, you know, this is far-fetched to say, but the Big Ben comparisons to him are just real. He's 6'7". He can eat a hit from two linebackers while dropping it in perfectly in the double coverage. I mean, he's a very talented player. I have high hopes for him. Not, you know, physically gifted as far as, like, moving around the pocket and stuff like that. But, again, he can take hits. He doesn't get bothered by it. He'll stand in. There's a 325-pound defensive tackle in his lap. He's going to sit there and throw the ball like he doesn't care. And he's not a bad rusher either. I'm not going to lie. I think when his first start, I think he was their leading rusher. He's a jack-of-all-trades. I really like the showboats. I'm glad they're you know, winning some games here. It's just they're in the, the tougher conference, sadly. They're, in the, they're the last spot in their conference. Um, they have to beat the Stallions again this year. They have to beat the Gamblers and the Breakers, who they did just beat, but – very, very high competition in that conference. But I do have hope for them. They, they've beat some of the better teams, but they just need to show some consistency. But uh, another thing I did want to briefly talk Hold about. Hold a minute. Roger, last have... question for Trevor. We've got uh, Mike sitting on the wings. Oh, well, I, I think you just brought up uh, a really good uh, quarterback uh, prospect. But, uh, Trevor, wasn't uh, Louis Aguilar, wasn't he a, ca- a kicker in the NFL previously? No, you're thinking of Nelson Aguilar for the Bucks, the first-round bust. Um, this this guy's name is Luis Aguilar. I don't think he's ever played in the NFL, but he just went eight for eight on field goals this past weekend. Expect to see him in an NFL jersey next year. You can mark my words on that. Kickers in this league, kickers in general, are just a scarce resource. And there was a guy right. in season one, his name's Riz Ahmed. He kicked a 64-yard field goal, and he's on the Packers now. So it, it one game can change your life. Trevor, thank you very, very much. As always, we'll check in with you again. And uh, sorry we had such a short run this time, but we'll catch along next week. All right, let's move on. Mike Zimzak is ready right now and uh, see which direction we're going to go with Mike, whether it's going to be football, soccer, or what. Uh, We'll start with the MLS. Last week he said it was week 11, so now we're, I guess, in week 12. So let's start with MLS. What do you got, Mike? Uh. Yeah, I think the direction that we really need to go in, and gentlemen, is good to talk to you as always. But I really think what we want to talk about is the sale of the commanders was finalized this week. And the oh, Josh Harris, uh, David Blitzer bid won. So uh, pending league approval at the end of this month, uh, we have a massive change in ownership. You can't and expect any kind of thing record. except that approval, right? Everybody wanted this. Yes. And all of them have been vetted. Uh, a bunch of them have been um, vetted because they were part of the Denver Broncos sale last year. They didn't win, but they were in there. And the other ones are Mitch Rails, who's a billionaire and a business owner in, 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 in Magic Johnson. I can't see anybody not passing the NFL ownership test. So uh, league approval should be coming up in a couple of days, and we've we've got a sale. <laughs> what was the final price? Uh, I believe we were in the neighborhood of uh, 
five billion? Five billion, okay. Because he was asking sex, that, right? Huh? He was asking sex. He's asking six. We're in the neighborhood of five. It looks like it's going to be double the price of what was paid for. It was, it's going to be more than what was paid for the Denver Broncos. And we're talking somewhere, you know, based on what he bought for the team, he paid for the team, um, it's 100 per, it's 100% profit for Dan Snyder. Okay. Roger? Well, the the big thing that Colorado had was they have a nice stadium, and and Washington has a dump, so that's where there's there, there's going to have to be a big investment. And uh, was there any uh, discussion about that in in that uh, sale at all, Mike? But, yeah, funny you should mention that, Roger. Um, recently, a prospectus from the Harris Blitzer organization. It's a 43-page prospectus that they were using to solicit investment in the, this potential commander's bid. And that got out, and ESPN published some of the details. And one of the things that was very clear in there was that they, and say what you will about Josh Harris, he knows his numbers. Uh, he estimates that they are going to get $1.5 billion from Virginia, which would likely be the best um, public money to build a stadium down there. Now, why this number is interesting, it is at least double what has ever been granted by another municipality in terms of public money. And this is pretty much well, a firm commitment? No, that's what they anticipate, but that's what they believe. And I'm actually, um, Donna, I'm not 100% sure that if he's putting that number out there, he doesn't have some way of knowing. Let, let me make it twofold. Really if they put that kind of money up, where are they going to put the stadium? It's uh, not going to be in Washington, would, right? Well, that would no, be from Virginia. Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. So that would be on the um, Prince William County sort of area that um, Daniel Snyder had already been looking for. But the big thing that he was talking about was, and he being Harris was thinking was that it'll be a whole lot easier to get things done once Dan Snyder is not the owner. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, they that the number that the in local revenue. Uh, ticket sales, parking, sponsorships, local revenue, that the commanders brought in about $175 million, and he forecasts that they – he Harris forecasts that they can double it and be over $310 million within uh, seven years simply by not having Daniel Snyder as the owner. Okay. Roger? Oh yeah, I agree with that. Okay, because uh, the what's the, uh, the 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 signing charge for uh, stadium rights? I mean, it used to be uh, like 20, what was it, twenty million a year, something like that. Uh, a region is paying somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five million, whereas the Commanders are currently getting seven point five million from yeah. FedEx. 
they but they anticipate that they could get upwards of thirty to thirty five million for okay. gaming rights for their new stadium. Is Prince William on ninety five like at Manassas? Yeah, that's kind of the region that we're talking about. Um, it's going to be a very interesting thing. Uh, traffic getting down there is going to eliminate a lot of fans. I was yeah. going to say, trying to go across the bridge and get on the 95, or uh, uh, the dullest, I mean, traffic out there and the, and the road patterns, holy smokes. How would they go about getting people in and out? Any way you well, go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you try to come I, back. You try to come back from the from the south, heading toward Washington, going toward home for us, uh, Roger. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, you're, you're moving five miles an hour most of the time on the after, in the afternoons. I, and I'm talking about weekends. I'm not just talking about during the week. I mean, oh, that's, I, how are they going to build roads that get you in and out? Um, gentlemen, you're asking a question that I don't know, and there's two big things that um, I think need to be talked about. Number one, uh, does said $1.5 billion uh, need to be voted on by the public? Because that's a lot of additional tax, right? Okay. I'm not 100% sure that even for the commanders that the populace of the Commonwealth of Virginia – would be willing to pay that additional sales and or income tax, right? So does that need to be voted on, or is it, or does does the Virginia legislator feel like they can raise that in municipal bonds and other things so that they don't have to put it in front of the public? That becomes a very necessary thing. Um, to answer your question, the commanders – actually had a lot of market research that suggests that they have a lot of fans in Virginia. And the demographics, the socioeconomics of those demographics suggest that they are a little bit wealthier than the fans to the north. They're willing to sacrifice Prince George's and Montgomery County, Maryland, for uh, the fans of Virginia. And basically okay. he said, we know that you will not come down here because you can't get here, and we're fine with that. We believe that we're going to get more fans from uh, the south, uh, the Richmond and below area that will come up and take those tickets. Roger? Well, the, the uh, how far – does Metro uh, run down there at all or near there? Metro runs near there, but uh, based on, you know, a lot of it is where they build it, and it does not look like there will be a convenient Metro stop, right? I think I've talked to you, um, if they build this stadium in the proposed area that had already been put forth originally by the commanders uh, prior to all of this, it will be the third furthest stadium from the city it's named after, right, only behind uh, the 49ers uh, who are San Francisco but play in what uh, Santa Clara. Santa Clara, and, right. And technically the New England Patriots from Boston to Foxborough. 
But both of them, um, Boston and Foxborough, there's a dedicated train line that runs out there. There's nothing like that for uh, the commanders. Um, I heard a lot of things about the freeway system and things like that that make it possible for 49ers fans to actually get to uh, Levi's to, to watch Mike, games. Mike, let me, inter- let me interject just for a moment here and interrupt you. With, you know, how long are we talking down the road before – I mean, we, we just talked to Pat Williams a minute ago, and his estimation for building a stadium for only 30000 for for baseball at, at a billion and a half – is going to take five years. How long is it going to take them to put the roads in and build a stadium to take care of the football club? Uh, I think, and based on what they're talking about for revenue estimates, uh, I think that we're looking at about seven to eight years at the earliest, which is very also very interesting because the lease on FedEx Field expires way before that. And so... Okay. Some of the ways that they're looking at financing it, um, they have a plus $600 billion valuation on the land for the current FedEx field and the uh, Ashburn training facility, which is weird. Um, They value the land for FedEx, all the land that they own now, at about $220 million dollars. And the land for where for for Ashburn where the, they practice, I think right. four hundred forty. So there would be some consideration about selling that plus the uh, private financing the one point five billion that they're estimating from that. That my math puts me at a little bit north of um, uh, 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 like two billion dollars. I think I'm up at about two and a. Uh, Two point two five billion. Um, and then well, I mean, we're looking a long way down the road here. Holy smoke! Yeah. Seven years. Yeah, we'll probably before be gone, able... Don. So we don't have to worry yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, before they 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 open that. And my thought is they need to open it sooner than that. Oh yeah, they have to because he's well, already it's... set aside a hundred million just to renovate the existing uh, FedEx field. Well, here's what I'm thinking. If, if if it's like, say, two stops away from the end of uh, Metro, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, look at when they decided to build the sports complex with Veterans Stadium, and, uh, and of course, the Spectrum was the first thing they built. And they had JFK there, obviously. They built the extension of the Broad Street subway, and then they said they should have even gone into the Navy Yard. But they were able to build that, and I think it's a heck of a lot tougher uh, to uh, build a, uh, a subway, and that's only two, spot, uh, two stops. It went from Snyder, to, uh, they built Oregon, and then they built uh, the, at the complex. So I can see yeah, but that, that was going uh, under uh, – Roger, that was going under Broad Street, right? That that's what I'm saying, Mike. South. It's a lot easier to, to build – like Marta is like Metro. Uh, most of it's overground except going under Atlanta, okay? And there you can you can build it because look at the way the Paco high-speed line was built, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it above ground and because before it only went to Camden. 
and then they they built it all the way that uh, they built that whole line, and it's, it was all built above ground, and it didn't take them that long to do that. That's why I think they could extend uh, Metro if it's not that far, and that would solve a lot of their problems for Maryland because they could get Actually, on, Mar- I, on uh, Metro. Yeah, but of where I believe it is not is not on an existing metro line. It'd be one thing if it was already on the silver line. It'd be one thing if it was already on the blue line. It'd be one thing if it's on the already on the orange line. I believe where they're looking at is not on or near anything. So what you would be asking me to do for metro would be to take the existing blue line and create a spur that goes about 20, 26 miles outside okay. of where it's already going. Okay. Um, Metro um, doesn't look like MARTA. It doesn't look like SEPTA. It doesn't look like um, MTA up in New York. Uh, It is specifically designed to get people from existing suburbs into D.C. and around D.C. when they're in there. But other than that, if you live in between the line, you're kind of messed over. Well, MARTA is only in two counties, Mike. Yeah, and and but uh, I and, know, you know it goes and, northwest, east, and south. Yeah, uh, well, boys, we're not going to be able to solve the traffic problem. Is there anything on the sports front, Mike? <laughs> from a soccer standpoint, uh, from a from a, a baseball standpoint, what else would you like to touch on? Because we're never going to build well, any right of these now, roads. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know Doug's coming on real quick, but the Philadelphia Union are down here. They're 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 playing uh, DC United uh, up in Philly. I thought they were in D.C., but they're up in Philly. Uh, it's nil-nil. Uh, the un- Union have been on a um, really good run recently, and they're playing a team that they have absolutely owned for quite a bit of time over the course of the last couple of years. So this could be uh, a big three points for them if they're able to pull it off. Anyway, gentlemen, I'll talk to you next week. Talk the, to Doug the United are up one nothing over Colorado, Mike. Uh, we're wa- oh, Atlanta United, yes. Yeah. How about you, we, yeah. before you leave, how about your Washington baseball club? They're not playing too badly. I mean, just, they're not great, but at least they're being representative at times. But, yeah, they're not great, but they're, they're not great, but they're not awful. And that's the Exactly. Best thing we can no, say, not, but, not what everybody expected. Everybody expected them to be a total loss. Um, you know, you, they've got some good pitching, and Patrick Corbin has actually been good over the last couple of months. Um, we'll see how it goes. Look, it's a long season. Uh, meanwhile, up uh, and you can talk to Doug more about this. The Orioles have just been on a tear. Oh, I'm telling you, we're going we're gonna to talk to Doug about that, but uh, he's not on the line yet, so I don't want to. Uh, oh, I don't wanna, okay. I don't want to. I don't want to jump the gun because he's got the Preakness this week. He's got the the uh, United States Open this week. Uh, a lot of things going on for for Doug tonight to talk about, from uh, horse racing to golf, but. Uh, yeah. Hey, let me just say one thing, you know, since we were talking about stadiums. I'm I'm watching the uh, Braves-Texas uh, Rangers game and that spectacular facility they have. The old Arlington Stadium is still there. They still use it for different things. And uh, and here they've got Jerry's Palace down there. I, why is it that in Texas they can build all these stadiums and it's never an issue but you get into our nation's capital, okay, that takes all our money, and everything's an issue. 
I don't get it. Um, uh, the one thing I will say about Jerry World was Jerry privately financed that. Yes, he did. Yep, that's right. Just and like Josh uh, Harris, Fargo Arena was was privately financed. If Josh okay, Harris, Doug Doug is all set to go now, so we'll we'll straighten out those financial <laughs> issues next week. Well, all right, we'll have to go to Don to get a loan. Hey, that's where we could take care of Mike. Don could privately finance it, and we'll call it the Don. He can handle it. Absolutely, Don can handle it all financially. We have proof of that too, Mike. Just call Bill Ward Bell. Call Bill Ward Bell. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, I want to say to you, thank you very much. A very informative (laughs) fifteen minutes, and we appreciate it very much. But we're going to talk about Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday because the U.S. Open is uh, all set to get started tomorrow. There's going to be a lot of TV between ESPN and CBS uh, as opposed to the Masters. They're going to start showing you at 1 o'clock and keep right on going until 7. It's going to be another terrific tournament. But before we get to that, we got to go to the Preakness because, uh, Doug, you got the Preakness in your own backyard. The Derby winner will be... Uh, very prominent, but at the same time, there'll be no other horses from the jer- from the uh, uh, Derby running at the Preakness this week. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to be a growing trend moving from Derby to Preakness that that happens. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I feel like the spacing in between is adequate enough that you know there, that turnaround wouldn't wouldn't be too soon if they're worried about you know the health of the horses, but. Um, you know, Don, we've talked about this from year to year that the Preakness for some reason seems to be the most dulled of the jewels, you know, of, of the three. Um, right. so I don't really know why that's the case. Um, you know, I know the venue isn't as swanky as the, you know, the Kentucky Derby at Churchill, but, um, you know, I think that if, if you have a horse and you, you want to run that, that's a pretty pretty big purse for you to claim if you can win or, or thereabouts. So, yeah, I don't understand it. Um, you know, obviously the Derby winner would want to continue if he has hopes of winning that, that triple crown, which, um, you know, in multiple cases you see, you know, Lucas and Baffert and, you know, all these guys that run their horses that have multiple horses and they, you know, intertwine the freshest of to – to compete in those those races. So, I mean, there's a little gamesmanship in there as well. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't explain, you know. Uh, did, did um, How many horses are actually running in it? Did, has that been disclosed or no? Yeah, I think there are only eight. I'm, I, I don't have the – Okay. Yeah, that's – I think it's eight, but I'm not thing. positive, I mean, but I don't have the sheet in front of me. I looked at it yesterday, but I didn't see yeah. – I got a bunch of junk you here, but I don't, think I, have, I don't think I have the the. 15, 20. Uh, I, but I believe I read. I believe I read eight, but I'm not positive. Okay. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, usually the Preakness is a smallish field, and um, you know, you go from fifteen, twenty horses to less than ten, and you know, it, if you like to gamble it all on horses, by the time it's all said and done, you know, they'll, they'll bet all those horses down to nothing. You know, um, so. All right, well, let's quickly yeah. go because 105th PGA, uh, three stories there. Mickelson will be playing. Rory uh, mm-hmm. has really not gotten over not making uh, the cut at uh, the Masters. A lot of a lot of the, in the papers the last couple of days about uh, uh, his attitude down at the PGA. He's not the same friendly guy that he normally is because 
he's still <laughs> trying to reconcile on his own mind what happened to him at the Masters, and he didn't uh, didn't perform well. And uh, they're playing on a great course, over seven thousand uh, yards for the golf course. Uh, terrific place to play up in Rochester, New York. Some of your observations about the PGA. Yeah, I mean, let me just uh, say this: the reason we see this is uh, Doug is a uh, PBA professional, and uh, so we usually talk golf uh, at the end of the segment. We're going to talk about it a little bit at the top. Go ahead, Doug. Give us give us your expertise. Well, um, I was watching uh, a little bit of them, you know, practicing and doing whatever they do today, and I saw Colin Morikawa had a ski cap on. So, I mean, it was a little on the chilly side. I mean, it's as I reside, it's about 59 degrees, so I can imagine in New York it was about that today or maybe just a little cooler with, with a little bit of wind as they were going through their warm-ups and practicing. So, you know, a longish golf course uh, at Oak Hill, uh, you know, I think you've got, from my standpoint as a PGA member, I mean, it's really cool uh, that the PGA allows and houses, if you will, the ability of club professionals to work their way through different you know, qualifiers and those sorts of things to compete um, at that level. Um, you know, in our Middle Atlantic section, I know that there's several guys that are probably in attendance that had won different tournaments throughout the year at, at the section level um, right. or national level that, that allowed them to compete in this. So that's pretty cool that, you know, guys from meetings that I go to and have played golf with and see that with tour professionals. Um, and I think that's the beauty of this tournament for me is it represents – you know, the Everybody. more than 28, 20, 28 29,000 PGA members that there are, you know, nationwide and, and um, essentially becomes our national championship. Uh, so it's it's fun to follow and watch. And, um, you know, obviously for those guys that, you know, can play and, and um, you know, do their thing throughout the year, this gives them a chance to compete on a bigger stage for a little bit more recognition and just to make that cut, I think is a, is a tremendous accomplishment uh, for any of those guys. And let alone just to play in it. Um, you know, you can imagine being a club professional at your respective club and going off to play at Oak Hill this week and having your membership really, you know, get behind that and, and Absolutely. Support you. you're um, playing on a 7,395 yard course with a par 70. I mean, that's, it's, yeah. This is big money stuff. Oh, by the way, just let me interrupt to say the Mets just hit a two-run home run. They're tied with Tampa Bay at 2-2, and they're playing at the bottom of the seventh inning in New York. Uh, go yeah. ahead, Doug. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a little different than most. I mean, obviously, you look at the other venues of, you know, Masters and I mean, and British and U.S. US Open. I mean, U.S. Open is, is an open qualifier that you'll – eventually catch, you know, different amateurs that work their way through or, or club professionals that do the same. Um, but this one is designed for that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great to be a part of the association and to recognize you as one of them, even if you're not playing in my case, that, you know, we're doing this for the growth of the game and, um, you know, to kick that can down the road in terms of whether it's juniors or seniors or ladies or whatever that case may be in terms of, of making them familiar with the game and having it grow that way. So that's that's kind of what this all represents to me as we get into the weekend. Roger? Yeah, I see the PGA is getting a uh, lot of, uh, of, of uh, promotion uh, from the uh, networks and networks, I should say. By the way, uh, the Preakman yeah. does have eight horses in it. I checked that okay. out. So yeah, I thought it was eight. It. That was the whole uh, shirt was eight. 
Yeah, eight horses. Yeah. But uh, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, I still look at the Masters as a class in itself. And uh, uh, yeah. I, w- what's going to happen? Are they, are they going? You know, I think this golf situation is so different. Uh, it is. I mean, uh, I saw a couple of guys the other day arguing. It used to be a gentleman's game. <laughs> and now that you have the two factions, it's not a gentleman's game anymore, which is sad. But when you start mm-hmm. seeing guys arguing about uh, who's on first and what's on second, I mean, uh, that turns me off. Uh, is is that going to stand, do you think, uh, Doug, you know, from a, a PGA, PGA professional's uh, view? Um. Yeah, I mean, look, um, at the grassroots level, I mean, obviously I've been in the business for 25 years and I've seen, you know, at all different levels, whether it be semi-private, public, private, you know, there's a lot of inner workings that that happen, whether it's politics or whether it's, you know, disagreements with, um, you know, rules and etiquette or, um, you know, the competitive nature that that people play. and, And certainly that changes some things, whether it's, um, you know, a club championship that you call a penalty on somebody or, you know, that was my tee time or he jumped in front of me or, you know, I mean, look, you, you have these sorts of disagreements at all levels. Um, but I would agree that in most cases, people like me are, are employed so that we can sort through those things and figure out, you know, what's amicable amongst, you know, the group or, you know, the, the game of golf has long been skewed to the better players aspect of um, how we run different things. You know, what we have to take into consideration is that there's a lot of people that are just beginning the game or there are people that are higher handicapped. So when you talk about, you know, maintenance practices of how fast you want your greens or how how big, you know, your, your bunkers are or how you manicure them or the, the length of rough or all those sorts of things, I mean, they, they boil down to a bigger picture. It's the forest, not the trees, right, so that we're – incorporating you know, all levels of play. Um, now you throw in there the, the live golf and, you know, the PGA and their constant battles, and you've got, you know, grumpy pants like Roy McElroy who didn't play well, who's going to take his ball and go home and not play. And you've got, you know, all these different concepts that enter into it. And at the heart of it, it's what? It's a game that we play in most cases to have fun um, with our buddies, with for camaraderie, uh, you know, maybe. But Doug Nicholson really started off loser. again the beginning of this week talking about uh, qualifying points for the, uh, you know, for the big tournaments at the end of the year, and who should qualify yeah. and who shouldn't. Whether if you're on the leave tournament, do you should you get uh, uh, points or should you not get points? And some people that he pointed out on money, he thought were already qualified, but the PGA is saying no, you're not qualified. So. Uh, that really brought it to a head again on Monday of this week. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, I think that you can't have your cake and eat it too in that sense. And if you've made your your choice to to play in that live golf where, the, where we know what those kind of rules are um, different, that, you know, you shouldn't have to be able to have it both ways. So, I mean, do you want to play 54 holes? Do you want to wear shorts? Do you want a shotgun start? Do you want you know, less tournaments, do you want more purse money, do you want more opportunities to win? Like all those things are things that you have to weigh the pros and cons to say, I want to do this. 
But once you make that decision, you shouldn't go backwards and say, well, I should still qualify for this tournament based on these exemptions or what have you. So I, I don't really see where that should be a point of contention if, if those are ground rules that have been set. Roger? Well, it's it's two different organizations, and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's probably like when the AFL started and then eventually – uh, they merged the NBA and the ABA. They merged uh, the the WHA and the NFL, NHL. Merged. Uh, do you see these two uh, organizations uh, maybe in, in 10, 15 years, maybe less, uh, where they would uh, combine and, and work out their differences? Doug? Um, gosh, Mike. Um, my magic eight ball says probably not. Um, if I shake it and, and look at it, I, I don't. Um, I don't see that to be the case. I mean, I think they're. It's very divisive amongst the two, and I think that, you know, the 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 long-standing history and tradition of the PGA with regard to, you know, the the Ryder Cup and and some of these other concepts, FedEx Cup and all these different things. I think it's just they're they're two different factions, you know, and and. You know, as I mentioned, the, the, the perks, if you will, of the live golf for the reasons these guys went to it was to do what? Was to possibly make as much money, to play less golf, to spend more time with their families, to do all these different things. I, I would think that they would look at that and be happy with their choices because I feel like they're getting what they what they should be getting. Yet, right. you know, they still want the, the same perks of, of qualifying and getting points for PGA-type, you know, events, which we know wasn't going to be included in that when they made their choice. So I think that should be a non-issue, and they should just make their choice of which one they want to be in and be done with it. Before we get out of time, we got to get over to your Orioles because I I, I know uh, you've been very happy with them so far in the season. Uh, they lost a couple of games maybe that were they were a little out of the picture this week, but uh, mm-hmm. they're still playing pretty yeah. solid baseball. Yeah, they, they, got, they met a, a nice uh, – guy from from Pittsburgh Keller that that uh I think he threw seven shutout innings and made him look really silly and then Otani got him the other night but they've you know mingled in some other wins in there that I feel like they're winning more than they're losing obviously and and I believe they're probably second probably the third best team in baseball in terms of record um I was listening to him tonight before I came on and I I think it was 3-1 uh, they were headed to, I think, top of nine. So my guess is Bautista probably pitched. I don't know what, what the result of that was. But, um, you know, they have the second-best bullpen in baseball. And although they have some underperforming players, we can note guys like Gunnar Henderson and, and people like that, that that have been on their team. I feel like each night, night in, night out, they have a couple guys that step up. And we went to the game last night and, and saw a, a pretty good game uh, with uh, with Mountcastle hitting a home run and you know taking advantage of some mistakes the Angels made on the you know uh, on the base paths and, and those sorts of things to manufacture some other runs. Their bullpen looks strong again and Dean Kramer. We can say what we want to about some of his early starts and how he didn't look very good, but he's turned it around to to become five and one. And uh, all in all, I mean I think very well. Um, I'm not sure if that's sustainable or how long that lasts, but, you know, uh, there's probably some help on the way with a couple pieces in their bullpen uh, meandering through some rehab assignments to to get back to the major league level. And we can always hope that that John Means becomes healthy once we get 
in and around that all-star break to hopefully solidify that rotation. And um, whether they go out and, and, uh, and make a move for, for somebody else, we don't know. But they've fooled around with some of their prospects. I think Joey Ortiz is up there right now, and Bob has been back and forth, and Stowers has been back and forth. And they're just trying to figure out, you know, who belongs and who doesn't and what they have. And um, even through that, I feel like they've played some pretty good baseball. Roger? Hey, Doug, is um, Mount Castle uh, from uh, Virginia uh, by any chance, do you know? Gosh, I I, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, okay. Uh, no, it's not a common name, and I knew a guy uh, years yeah. ago uh, named Ron mm-hmm. Mountcastle from northern Virginia, mm-hmm. and I was thinking – you know that uh, they might might be a grandson, something like that. But yeah, I don't, the, uh, the, I don't recall. Yeah, yeah, he's he's getting a lot of uh, good publicity. So uh, you know, must I mean I don't see you know I see national games. I saw what was it last night? I guess yeah. uh, they were on. And uh, but from what I see, I mean they're a really very well balanced team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they have an awful lot of fun. When you watch them play, there's a really good vibe. And being at the stadium last night, you can really feel that vibe. And and you guys may be more, you know, I know 2019 you had the Washington Nationals that won the World Series, and they were never really out of the game. And you were always waiting for them, even in the late innings, if they were behind to figure out a way to win. And that's what they did all the way through the playoffs. And I feel like the Orioles kind of create that same level of excitement, um, you know, throughout that game, and you, you never really feel like they're out of it, and they always have a chance uh, to well, manufacture runs. I think you say the same thing about mentioned. the Phillies last year, uh, Doug, because yeah. you yeah. know the second half of the year, uh, they they never seemed to be out of it. You think they're going to lose a game, but they didn't. Right, right. They always seem to have somebody that steps up, and, you know, last night Mountcastle didn't start, and he came off the bench and had a couple hits. One of them was a two-run homer, and, you know, there they go. So, um you know, Brandon Lowe just hit a really two-run good. home run for Tampa Bay, and they're up on the uh, Met New York Bets four to two in the top of the eighth inning. Lowe just hit yeah, one Rangers. out over the right field fence. Rangers mm-hmm. are up over the Braves uh, three two. Bottom of the fifth. I, t- I tell you, Ra- Rangers uh, haven't been doing well in recent years, but I they uh, from what I see tonight. They've got a big crowd there, and they're really playing well against the Braves. They had a guy thrown out at the plate or would have been 4-2. Well, the sad part about them is that, you know, they paid all that money for the free agent player, and he's hurt again. Yeah. And and look at uh, in uh, New York. I mean, uh, the uh, with the two, the two big guys, they both have had. Injury problem. Hey, listen, age creeps up. Just got the call from the master, Frank, our director and uh, operator. He just tells me we're tick, tick, tock. We're out of time. Doug, thank you very much. Nice to talk PGA golf tonight, and we'll see what happens over the weekend. Roger, thank you very much. Take it over, Frank. All right. Have a great week, Frank. God bless. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation. The men and women of the United States Armed Forces. <clears throat> the men with fire services. When you're out there and somebody in uniform, please let them know you know they're there. It's very important that they get a little bit of support out of people in the community. These programs are dedicated to those who lost their lives in the line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman Jeffrey Colcat, 
Detective Dan, excuse me, Patrolman David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazwood, Sergeant Thomas Banger, Detective Randy Bell, Detective Ricky Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Henley, Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman on Norfolk, I'm sorry, Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department, the Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, the Philadelphia Fire Department, Lieutenant Jewish Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Chuck Levake, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman Nafa Christian, Lakeland PD, Lieutenant Joe Zerba, Newcastle County Police, Patrol Deputy Josh Meyer, Nassau County Sheriff's Department, Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Artis Hope, Wilmington Fire Department, Trooper Joe, Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol, Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol, Chief Al Hogan, Longwood Police Department, Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department, Deputy uh, Mike Hargrove, Finalist County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Blaine Lane, Polk County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Chris uh, Myers, Polk County Sheriff's Department, and Sergeant Christopher Fitzgerald, Philadelphia, Philadelphia Sheriff's Office and Temple Police Department. My brothers and sisters, I know you may be 10-7 at this point in time, and sometime will be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, may the rose rise up to meet you, and the winds be always at your back. May the rains fall softly on your fields, and the sun shine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your family always in the hollow of his hands. Good night, God bless, and have a great week.
County Dispatch in 1999. County Dispatch in 1999. County Dispatch in 1999. All units be advised, 1999's response to his last emergency. May God bless his soul and all the souls of the faithful departed. Bye, Bob. We love you and we miss you.